As often, I think it's um, better to look back to get started to see where we've been before we move on. Um, we are, prior to this series, we talked about the story of the kingdom of God, how um, God created a world with an intention, putting man in the center with a vocation to display his glory. We were to do this by bearing his image. We were to do this in the way that we showed his reign over the earth, and we were to do it by expanding his presence as we went forth. Um, and obviously, we um, messed that up. And the Bible from that point on is a story of God's persistent seeking for our redemption and the redemption of that vocation. Um, that reaches a pinnacle in Jesus when God comes himself, dies upon the cross to bring about that, to cleanse us of our guilt and our sin, um, to sanctify us and make us holy and right so we can stand before him. And he does it with the purpose of joining us to his body to put us back on that vocation of going forth and spreading his glory, of multiplying as we go out. Um, and that reaches the church's birth at Pentecost when the spirit descends, where that presence to go with us comes upon them. And Peter gets up and gives a sermon and 3,000 people get added to their number that day. And then in this series, we've been looking at the life of that early church to see what they did, to see what the practices were of the body as they worked to fulfill this calling. A people called together as a community and a body by the Spirit. What did they do and how can we apply that to us? We've looked in a certain passage and looked at the individual clauses and seen how can we take these things and bring them into our various gatherings? How can we bring them here and this Sunday? How can we apply them um, at the home groups, and how can we eventually and hopefully just continue to work them into all the aspects of our lives? In doing that, we've looked at a particular passage, if you want to turn with me, uh, to Acts 2. This starts at verse uh, 42, of the second chapter of Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage paints a beautiful picture of the life of the early church. It offers a summary of what they did. Um, and it's a rich and vibrant image. You see these people who have been called together from different scopes of life, joining into a single fellowship. They're meeting consistently. They're sharing meals. They're in the temple together, praising God. They're joined together in one verse in, in prayer. And we see them selling what they have and giving it to the common good to make sure that the material needs of their new brothers are met. I mean, you can just picture, I just, I read this and I just see, you can almost like hear bread being broken, there being a laughter of joy as these people share a new life together. And they talk about just the marvels of what God's doing in their age. And it's something that 
Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't want us just to see as the moment here. This isn't something he wants us to imagine as being that quick flurry of activity after Pentecost that eventually fades after a couple of weeks as people start to kind of slink back to their regular patterns of life, a little embarrassed about how exuberant they got about the Jesus thing. He wants us to see it as something that continues on. All the stuff that gets talked about in this passage we see continuing on in the rest of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. We see they stay devoted to this apostles' teaching. Uh, when the first kind of controversy happens and the apostles need to make sure their time doesn't get eaten up, they say part of it is because they need to remain devoted to the ministry of the word, to teaching and proclaiming the gospel. Paul's method is he go, Paul, who he wrote about, his method is to go to these places and he teaches there. He proclaims the gospel and continues to teach. And then the church writes these letters. The apostles write these letters, sorry, to the churches. And these letters are so valued by the churches that they hold on to them and treasure them. They hold on to them long enough that centuries later, they were still in good shape enough to combine them into a book that they pass on to us. So valued was the continuation of that teaching. The same is true about prayer and worship. The other things the apostles needed to make sure their time was free for was prayer. Throughout this book, we see people coming together in worship. The epistles, those letters, tell us to continue in prayer and worship. And we see there's a story that kind of combines those when, when they're sending out the first basic kind of distant missionary group. They're together in worship and the Spirit tells them to set aside two people, Paul and a guy named Barnabas, to send out. And then they pray and fast to send them out. So this prayer continues on as well. So does the worship, as does the care for each other. In the next chapter, Peter's going to tell a guy he doesn't have money. And people think that might be because he really didn't have money. He had given it to the common good, and he just didn't have it on him at that point. The first major kind of church-wide controversy happens because of how the care was being distributed. And one of the things that runs through Acts and Paul's epistles, which you can kind of miss as you go through it, is he is going to these new churches he's planted in far-off regions, and he's collecting money for the Christians back at Jerusalem because there's a famine in that region. He's getting people to give money joyfully for people they've never met because they've been joined into one family. And the fellowship continues as well. When we hear discussions of Christians, it's always viewed as part of a body. Even when it focuses on individuals, which it often does, because God's not telling the story of like some faceless thing. He tells a story with Thomases and Tehillahs and Sheilas. He tells it with individual peoples, but he views their story as them being joined as part of a body. And their point, the way they get connected to the story we read about is how they are joined to that body. This is important because Jesus, one of the things he says is that people will know we are his disciples by the way we love one another. The care that the body had was not some incidental. It was a testimony to who we were and are. It's a testimony that we are Jesus's people, that we are his followers. This is so important, this bringing together of a new body that crosses the ethnic divides, that crosses the class divides, that Paul writes a letter where he is just mad and saying unkind things to a large extent to a church. He writes a letter of Galatians because these people, he sees they're dividing and trying to make ethnic markers, requirements for joining this body. He sees it not simply as a challenge, it's not just a missional challenge. It's something that goes against the heart of this gospel, which is bringing together these people into one body. 
So we see these things continue. And this picture we have in Acts 22 is something that we're supposed to see that way. The challenge is it's also a very idyllic picture. And that's especially true of this last section. And it just, it's been a challenge this week because it says, they are having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So we're told here of something we're supposed to expect to continue of them simply living a good Christian life. And everybody looks at them and goes, you guys are awesome. And they're pouring through the doors to join them. If this was where the Bible ended, if we basically in the New Testament had the Gospels and then the first two chapters of Acts, and Luke brings us up to this point and goes like, the Spirit fell and this is how the church is and will continue forever, and then the Bible ended, this would probably be the hardest section of the Bible for me to believe. And this is a book with a talking donkey, with a son that stands still. It has God take on flesh and we kill him and he rises again. And all of those things are easier to believe in that passage if it stood alone. I can believe a donkey can talk. If he is God and he can make a donkey, if he wants it to, it can talk for a period of time. But this, if this just continues in this manner, this is what I'm supposed to be experiencing, and this is not the experience I see on a daily basis. My experience of being a Christian is not people being thrilled with it. I've been respected because of it. They've looked and gone, I appreciate the way you hold to your ideals, but they actually haven't been pouring through the doors at that point. They still find me as a bit of an oddity. So it's hard to know what to do with this, this section. We've been teaching on it because we believe it continues. If it doesn't continue, we've spent the last six weeks basically taking, wasting your time through kind of a nostalgic side trip, talking about the good old days and what once was. But if it does continue, how are we supposed to see this continuing? And how are we supposed to expect people to, to find favor with people and to see them added to our numbers day by day? And I think to know that we need to see where this sits in the book. You need to consider where these people have been, the people of whom this passage talked about. We talked about what happened at Pentecost, but consider the previous two months of their lives. Maybe think back about your life. Two months ago is like mid-April, mid-April. So think about all the major things that have happened in your life since April. Like just life-changing things that have happened. They haven't been that many, even if you take all of us collectively. And we've had a wedding, which is a fairly life-changing event. I was really hoping to say we had a birth, but that seems to just be skipping just past. Um, but we've had some major things that have happened just past. Connor just wouldn't play ball this one. But consider the two months these people have had. They enter Jerusalem with the Messiah. This is two months prior. They enter Jerusalem with the Messiah. This is a person they gave up everything they had to follow. He's the one they expect to bring the kingdom of God into place, and now everything's coming to fruition, and they kill him. So you're going one way, we turn sharp this direction that way, and then he rises from the dead. So we're going back that way. He stays with us for 40 days, and then he goes up to heaven, which is kind of a, we don't know which way to go on that one. And then you're in a room, 120 of you, when the spirit that's long been prophesied falls upon you, you go out and preach, and 3,000 people get added to you. 120 to 3,000 in one day. 
They have been spun around in circles so much, they have no idea what's going on at this point. Every paradigm they had for how life was supposed to work has been basically torn up, discarded, and replaced with something brand new. And what Luke wants us to see is what that leads into. He's trying to offer a summary here of the life of this new paradigm. And we have, we understand how this works in other things. This concept of this, like a short snippet that shows you a new paradigm. Ours are just usually set to music. I mean, you know the thing, it's like you have the, the rough kid from the streets who loves dance. And they run into this old grizzled person that they don't know quite what to do with, they don't want to trust him, but then they find out there used to be a dance instructor. But they don't know if they can trust anyone. And then something happens, an event happens that proves, wait, I could trust this person. They can train me to be a dancer. And then we know what happens. Some top 40 wannabe song starts and we get a short, little clips of a montage to tell us what the next period of time happens. You see, they try the move and it fails and they have a nice dinner and they're laughing and they try the move again, they get frustrated and then they go on a date with somebody usually for some reason and they try the move again, they finally nail it as the music comes to a close. And we know what we're supposed to have seen there. We get small segments that are supposed to tell us of a larger story of what's going on. And that's something of what Luke is offering here. He's offering a bit of a montage. Now, film montages come in different ways. I mean, you get the, sometimes it's just the romantic one, which is just like the training one but without the training. Or you get like the drug kingpin who's vanquishes enemies and then you see his kingdom consolidated with piles of money billing and, and his turf expanding. In all cases, you have the same thing. You have, usually there's an event that sets it off. There's something that sets things in flight and then you have a straight path where you see the progression from that event. It can be a very short event. You can have a toast, and then you can see a night of drinking over a minute, and all the things that happen. But you know the toast is what caused that. What Luke is trying to draw our attention to is a life that happened and the reason it has happened. We have the spirit has fallen, and this is what we're supposed to expect going forward. Now, I love montages. I am a sucker for montages. I like the cheesiest, worst montage possible, and I like the best ones. Obviously, the best ones I like more, but anything in montage form appeals to me. I don't know if it's because, by nature, I'm a person who likes to build systems. I like to build things, so actually getting to watch like how something just happens appeals to me, but I love montages. It's when things are working, usually, or falling apart completely, but it has, you understand the flow. There's a generally, montages one render at one, run one way. You don't have a mo the dancing montage. If they end up at law school at the end of the montage, the montage was done poorly. It needs to get you from somewhere you start to somewhere you know. And again, that applies here. But the reasons you do that is because there's a limit to what you can show in that sort of way. You need to show a natural progression from the inciting event. To use cinema terms. Um, because there's only so much that you can cover in a montage or a summary. You can't change course. You can't go to law school in the middle of a dance one. You also can't overcome the biggest obstacles. Because if you went to a movie and the dancing movie, it, when it kicked into montage, the montage went on for another 15 minutes and then the movie was done, you'd feel ripped off. And not just because 
you paid $14 for a 25-minute music video, you'd be upset because the story was worthless. Because we know that in real life, there are challenges that need to be overcome that are bigger than the thing that sets the montage off. If that is the way it works, all that mattered was trusting this person. But what we really want to see is we want to see them in the final competition. We want to see the couple start fighting and then actually work through the tensions. We want to see how this drug empire actually plays out when the new rivals come up or the internal corruption of the person starts kicking in. We need to see the conflict. Because a story needs to move on and we have to leave the warmth and good feelings of montage to do that. You need to leave the summary. And that's what Luke does. If Luke is trying to imply in this passage that the church went on unopposed and always well-liked, he does a terrible job. He cannot stay on topic. The next thing that happens is something very similar to Pentecost. At Pentecost, a marvelous thing, thing happens. In the next chapter, a lame man gets healed. At Pentecost, a crowd accumulates. Here, a crowd comes to see what's happening. At Pentecost, Peter takes the, out, the chance and preaches. At this one with the crowd, he preaches the gospel to them as well. At Pentecost, many believe, and we go into this chapter. Here, Peter gets arrested. Him and John get dragged off to jail and go told to stop preaching Jesus by the powers in that city at that time. So rather than trying to show an endless stream of favor and unity and just this marvel of this passage happening continuously through the church life, so we all wonder if we are just so messed up as Christians that this is the reason we're a failure, Luke spends most of the next section showing conflict from outside, oppression, uh, persecution and arrests, and conflict within. You get... Um, people lying and defrauding each other within the church, and you get rivalries amongst the different factions. So far from this being just idyllic for the rest of Acts, and then we've screwed it up since then, from the next section, Luke is showing us the different conflicts. But through that section, intermixed between the failures from within and the failures and attacks from outside, he keeps coming back to little kind of small summary statements, again restating this general idea where the body is shown together in prayer and worship, supporting one another, just being together. He's trying to paint a picture showing, look, the challenges are going to come from outside. It isn't, this is not just a easy cakewalk from this point on, but he's saying within those challenges, this life keeps continuing. He's showing us that the life that gets started at Pentecost is something that will continue to go forward despite our failures within us and challenges and opposition that will come from outside. The kingdom of God will continue going forward. He wants to show this kingdom life moving into maturity. When Peter gets arrested even, so the same story happens. He preaches to this and 5,000 get saved. He preaches over here and gets arrested. But in that same passage, it tells us, but some heard and believed and they reached a number of 5,000. So we see two different things. We see People hearing, being wondrous and amazed, and every one of them turning in favor, and God adds to his kingdom. And we see opposition rising up and arresting the apostles, and God adds to his kingdom. 
Because this book, this book of Acts, this portion of our Bible, I had to try and describe to my daughter today why the numbers kept resetting as I would change through the different things. She couldn't figure out why the chapter numbers keep resetting. The book of Acts, not the Bible, but the book of Acts is a book about growth in addition. That is the overall thrust of this book. Um, when Jesus, at the start of this, tells the apostles, when he gives them what we refer to as the Great Commission, he tells them they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and in the rest of the world, he's basically giving the table of contents of Acts. The next thing that happens is in Jerusalem, the spirit falls, and a community is birthed that exhibits this section, this passage, this being together, prayer, worship, care for one another. Then but the persecutions and challenges rise up. It gets more and more heated. It eventually ends with, this section ends in chapter seven with the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And it tells us the church is scattered and they go into Samaria where the spirit falls. And again, we are to understand this sort of community is being set up as the broader community of God is expanding. And then we get this weird side story, it seems like, telling about the conversion of Paul which might just seem like God's telling us about the time he got his biggest enemy converted. But then the right chapter right after that is Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which would be the rest of the world, and the spirit falls, and the community of God is broadened. And Paul will take over from almost that point on and become the main character of Acts because he is the missionary to the rest of the world. What we're seeing here is the spirit falls in Jerusalem, the spirit falls in Samaria. The spirit falls amongst the Gentiles, amongst the rest of the world. Jesus' commission to the people to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, into the rest of the world, we're seeing it be fulfilled in Acts. Acts is written like a broadening, I don't know, funnel going the other direction. It starts narrow in Jerusalem. It starts with 120 people. And the continual march of Acts is an increase in number and a broadening of the scope. It goes to more and more cities. It goes to more and more people. And in the midst of that, that opposition and the internal failings continue. Christians screw things up. We don't live up to our calling throughout the book of Acts. This is not something we've invented in recent centuries. And opposition is continuous. There's a very different response. It isn't like every time the spirit falls, 3,000 get saved in that city, and that's your starting point. Sometimes Paul goes to a city, and the city responds positively, and he gets to stay there for a year to two years, firmly establishing a church. Sometimes he goes to a city, and a couple people respond, and the rest of the city literally kills him. Very different responses, even within the book of Acts. But the point is, it keeps going on. And moving beyond the book of Acts, we know this to be true of history as well. Acts ends, I don't know, roughly 60 AD, somewhere in that range, 50 to 60 AD. But we now have another two millennia almost of history. And we've seen the same thing. Sometimes the gospel is bursting forth. And sometimes it seems like the soil is very hard and responses are very limited. 
Tim Keller um, speaks of there being seasons, that some regions in the world are essentially in winter, speaking of the Arab world, where the church is underground, converts are few, and the church is basically staying alive with hopes of bursting forth in the future. And then there's places like where he refers to as being spring, like China, where the church is still mostly underground, but it's starting to become something too big for them to ignore, and it's starting to burst forth. And then there's places where it's in summer, where it's in full bloom, like South America or uh, Africa, where the church has more influence in the culture, and it's more of a prominent institution. And then there's places in fall where the church's influence is starting to wane, where you'd have the Western world with us included. But through that, and that is the truth, it's not always the same everywhere we go. It's not always 5,000 being added in a day. Sometimes it's one in a year. Sometimes it is 5,000 in a day. But through this, the church of God is moving on. The hard thing for us is we all live like 70, 80 years in one spot. So we see a little sliver of how things actually are. At a broader scale, the kingdom of God is marching on. From our little sliver, it can look imperceptible. Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom being like leaven, which is the stuff you put in bread that'll make it rise. So you put it in this large amount of bread, and it starts to work. But you can't always tell that it's working. But it is inevitably working. Their growth is sometimes imperceptible, sometimes it's very obvious, but it is something that it is at work and continuous. I mean, it differs, it differs. so it differs when you live. I guarantee you, it, you're gonna get a different response as a Christian in um, 30 AD, as you're gonna get in um, 700 AD, as you'd get in 1400 AD, as you would get now. You would get a different response to the gospel message um, proclaimed within the city. And you're gonna get a different response depending on where you live now as Keller's seasons show. And even in here, Los Angeles is different from the Midwest, which is different from the South. There's different growth everywhere you go. This doesn't throw the apostles off. It's, they didn't, after Pentecost happened and you had uh, 3,000 saved that, that day, they didn't spend the rest of the time trying to figure out how to recreate the magic of Pentecost. If that happened today, we would probably tear each other apart with differing reasons for why we have not returned to that former glory. But they understood what had happened there, and they understood that God was moving in different ways as they went forth, continually adding to their numbers. The church often errs by trying to recreate a former glory. When, Jesus, when they went up to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's instinct was to build tabernacles, a place you could stay and have worship there. And Jesus tells them, no, because it's a mountain from which they were to go down to keep on the mission of God. We can't just be looking back to former glories. We have to be continually about what God is doing in our time. So how do we stay on mission? How do we respond to irregular growth? I mean, we've been, I've been in this church for 
15 years. And the numbers have hovered in the same general range. Uh, I mean, the church in America is struggling. It's not a growing institution. If you look at the numbers, it's in a percentage decline. So what do we do at this time? What does it mean for us? How do we display this life of praising God? How do we find favor or not find favor? And how do we seek to have people added to us by God day by day? And there's two ways that I could think of, and they're both so basic, they were kind of embarrassing to put down on paper. Um, but they also were so challenging, this has actually been fairly hard to work through over the past few days. We are to be expectant and faithful. We probably shouldn't be banking on 3,000 in one day. I mean, if it happens, praise God. But it shouldn't, our model should not be built around 3,000 turning the next time Terry goes out in the corner to preach. But we also can't let our expectations be set by what we see naturally. Um, too often we can think of the mission field, of the people we come into contact with, of our situations in terms of a clear progression. We assume that like a ten, if there's 10 steps to come into Christ, we're like, okay, we can tell when people are on steps eight or nine, and that's when you go in for the kill. But the story of Saul is helpful in that regard. Um, he was not on step eight or nine. He was on step one trying to walk backwards. He was trying to put the church to death. He went on a journey to go arrest Christians, and by the time he got to the city, he was a Christian. My own story is similar to that. I was not trying to arrest or kill Christians, don't worry. But I was very actively not trying to be a Christian. I didn't like Christians. I didn't like the church. I was not looking. I was not at the end of my rope. If there was rock bottom, I was, as far as I could tell, I was as far from it as you could get. I liked my life. And in 15 minutes, when I most definitely was not looking for God, I looked to someone and said, I think I'm a Christian. They had no idea where that came from. And I still look at this world with natural eyes. I still look out at the city of Los Angeles and I see something that I just wonder how it can ever be changed. I look at the people I know, I look at the struggles they go through and I'm like, they are so far. What's the point of even trying? I should know better. I mean, we all should know better. Because our call is to be faithful. If 3,000 are getting added in a day, or if it's one over 10 years, the call is still the same. Our job is to be faithfuls. Faithfuls. Faithful. Faithfuls, sure. There we go. We are disciples of Jesus. And a disciple is somebody who follows their master doing what they, are, um, what they see him doing being about what he's about. There's not a dichotomy in the Bible between disciples and converts. If you convert to Jesus, you are a disciple. Terry said it before, it's not like there's a gradation of Christians with like 
converts being the entryway, and if you do things right over the next 15 years, you'll slowly progress through the little path and get to be a disciple when we finally tell you what it's all about. If you are a convert, you are a disciple. The biblical dichotomy is not between convert and disciple, it's between a faithful disciple and an unfaithful disciple. And our call is to be faithful to what Jesus is calling us to do. And that works in every season. That's something you can do when it's winter, and it's something you can do when it's summer. It's something when you're in spring and you feel like it's just around the corner, or when it's you're in fall, and what everything is telling you is it's actually gonna get harder as the years go on. Our call and our response can still be to faithfulness. There's a writer whose work I enjoy, and she has a poster on her wall that reads, as a reminder to her and her husband, fidelity to the word of God and not to an outcome. I'm gonna say it again, fidelity to the word of God and not to an outcome. Fidelity, faithfulness to where God would lead us and not to where we would see a good outcome or a poor outcome. That means faithfulness when it leads to favor and 3,000 in a day, and faithfulness when it leads to disfavor, no one responding and costing you everything. Our response is to be faithfulness. Jesus has given us a mission. We have the same mission that the apostles had. We are to be his witnesses everywhere. We are to baptize people and make disciples, and we are to teach them to obey all that he's commanded us. And like them, he will be with us everywhere we go. We have the same spirit dwelling with us that Peter had when he got up to preach at Pentecost. So we are to faithfully do that regardless of what our natural eyes tell us the outcome will be. Now, we need to be expectant. We need to be longing for growth. We can't just be faithfully hitting our head against a wall, expecting things to always go terribly, but we're going to faithfully just begrudgingly do it because God said it. <clears throat> no, we faithfully get up knowing that God can do anything he wants when he wants to, but it's just on us. We have the simpler job. We just do what he says. And the truth is, we're all going to die. I hope that's not news to anyone. Uh, if you did, people have done you a terrible disservice. Um, but I mean that in a real sense. You have less breaths today than you did when you woke up this right now, than you did when you woke up this morning. Regardless of how many years you have left, and I pray it's a lot for all of you, there's less than there were this morning. The question is what we're going to do with this. And we have to be intentional about that. We have to stop and take stock of where our life is going and what, it's, what path it's taking. There's a book that I never finished. It was terrible. Absolutely awful. But I still have it on my shelf because there was one line I liked in it, which was that people stop to check their grammar halfway through a sentence. Why don't we do the same about our lives? that we take stock of what's going on in our life and the trajectory it's taking, knowing that we can change things as we go. Because we have to do that intentionally because this culture, to kind of switch the book title slightly, will entertain us to death. 
You will be distracted and confused, and you'll eventually just be dead without having really thought about what you were doing. But as Christians, we have a weighty calling. Our work has eternal value. And that doesn't just mean getting people across the line as converts. The stuff we do has repercussions into eternity. Now, this is not a call for every one of us to sell their job, to sell their job, to sell all they have, to quit their job and go be missionaries. Um, I say that obviously. I am not a full-time, I'm even a part-time professional ministry person. I work a very long job. Um, and they pay me for it, thankfully. Um, we are thinking of not selling all of our goods, but actually buying a car. I mean, a minivan, because that's the way we are in life right now. Um, God help us. But it is a call. I mean, to some extent, there's an appealing simplicity to that. I mean, sometimes it would just be nice to go be a monk, to, have, to sell everything and have no other concern about just getting up and making beer and doing what God told you that day. But that's not where most of us are called to live. We do something that in some ways is more challenging. We have to have the resources and not let them corrupt us. We have to be serious about our jobs and not let it consume us. We need to be willing to make money not so that we can enrich ourselves, but so that we can have it to take care of the things that are important to us and to give it away as needed. It's really challenging to put yourself into a position where you can strive and work hard at a job, where you can bank your family's mortgage, your kid's college on it, that your dreams of advancement can be put onto it, and to know that you, the faithfulness to God might cost, it, cost you that job in a day. But that's where we, how we have to live. Those things we have, our possessions, our jobs, our families, our time, are something that we have to give back. They're gifts that have been given to us so that we can use them as we are faithful witnesses wherever we go. This is only worth it for one reason. I said it before, this church is not that awesome that you should live that sort of life. I like all of you, but it's just not there. Jesus does not compare some local church or some particular ministry or some particular calling in life to a great treasure. But he says the kingdom of God is that. It's a treasure that it is worth to go sell everything you have to try and obtain it. then Jesus himself is the king of that kingdom. He's the one who gives it its worth. He's the reason it's valuable. He's the reason that everything we have should be on the table to make sure it doesn't hinder us and that it is something we are willing to give to the purposes of his kingdom because he is valuable. And that's why our next series, we are going to be looking at Jesus. We want to just put him up and repeatedly show how valuable and wonderful he is because he's the only person who can make this worthwhile. If he isn't who he says he is, don't give up your jobs for him. 
Eat, drink, be merry, because you're going to die still. But you might as well have a good time while you go. But he is valuable. He is worth it. And his kingdom and the purposes he's given us are worth putting everything we have and all that we are towards him. You're going to be tired. You're going to be exhausted. It's where we live. It is a grind. But we can live it for something bigger. I want to close just reading that passage one more time, this image of a life that we have, because this life is possible. We're not going to experience it in some glorious, trouble-free existence where we are always in complete, perfect fellowship with no fighting, praying, and loving on one another, and giving our goods to the common care while the world outside of us cheers us and tries to knock down that door to come in. But we can, in a very real sense, live the life that's laid out here of caring for one another, of learning from God and following him in his ways, of praising him together, of being of one voice in prayer, of having a true fellowship with one another, and of being on the, his mission to be his witnesses and seeing people added to this number and seeing the people that get added really grow. We can be about that and we can see that really happen here amongst us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for this vision of what can be. We thank you for this vision of this fellowship, this communion with you and with one another that we actually will surely taste. Lord, we long and look forward to your kingdom coming fully in the new creation when we will taste this completely. But we know that we will experience it now. Even if it's in shadows occasionally, Lord, we will know the sweetness of your kingdom here on earth. We pray that you would give us eyes to see this. That you would give us eyes to see the evidences of the works as they come. That you would give us eyes to see beyond the natural steps towards your kingdom. The natural ways that it moves. That you would give us a faith that believes that you can do as you will. We pray that you would give us boldness to be your witnesses. That your spirit would come upon us that we might be bold. That we might judge this world properly. That we might judge our possessions and our callings and our jobs and every little thing we can lay out there as important as they might be that we would judge them properly in light of you and your kingdom. Give us eyes to see that, that we might be witnesses to this world. And we pray that your spirit, as we testify to who Jesus and his kingdom is and are,
that your spirit would pierce hearts and they would be convicted. Let your kingdom come in Los Angeles. Amen.